Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm going to cover in this audio 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. I've entitled this section, Husbands and Wives Suffering for Righteousness' Sake. Now, that's because Peter divides this first, these first 12 verses up into two sections. The first has to do with husbands and wives. The second has to do with suffering for righteousness' sake. I don't think they're connected, as in husbands and wives suffering because they are married together for righteousness' sake. I don't think they're connected, although it sounds like it. Our context is this. In the previous chapter, Peter was also talking about submission and suffering, mainly talking about submitting to the government and slaves submitting to their masters. And so then now he moves to chapter 3, talking about husbands and wives. So we start now in verses 1 and 2, 1 Peter 3. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the Christian message, they may be won over without a message by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. In the same way, Peter says, in the same way as what? Well, Peter's referring to submission to government authorities in the last chapter. Let me read that, First Peter 2, 13 through 17. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good as God's slaves live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So basically he's saying submit to the government. And the next verses in chapter 2, 1 Peter, verses 18 through 23, he talks to the slaves and to the masters. He says, Household slaves, submit with all fear to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor, if mindful of God's will, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. But what cre- for what credit is there if you sin and are punished and you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered you, le- suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So Peter has already written extensively about submission, uh, and especially submission to unjust authority. He mentions Jesus at the end here, how Jesus was submitted to unjust authority. And I think he's probably still thinking that when he's talking about wives submitting themselves to their own husbands, because he says even if some disobey the Christian message, that's not talking about the Christian husbands. That's talking about the non-Christian husbands. And some of them could have been unjust in their husbandry. You know, there's an old Chinese saying, if if you can show me a righteous man, I can show you one. A reliable man, I should say. If you can show me a reliable man, I can show you a mother pig that can climb a tree. And, of course, wives are going to end up with husbands like this. And so Peter is saying, don't go out. Start doing the feminist thing. You know, I'm going to live my life and find myself apart from you. Because then you're going to wreck the home. You're going to mess up your kids. And you're going to bring reproach upon the gospel. He was saying, if you act like a godly Christian woman, the husband may be won over without a message, without a gospel preaching message by the way their wives live. Now, this is not a guarantee. Notice, it's may be won over. It's possible. And so Peter's saying, it's worth a shot. Give it a shot. Try being pure and reverent, quiet and gentle, he says in a few verses later. Husbands like that. I'm going to give you a true story now. There's a young Chinese woman. I think she's 31 or so. She's divorced from her husband when she was in her 20s. 
she decided, she said she was a very devoted and submissive wife, but then she found a feminist friend of hers. She was, this girl, this, this woman I'm telling you about, we'll call her O-Y-L-I for her initials. So O-Y-L-I was basically submissive to her non-Christian husband. She was living a non-Christian life. And this feminist friend said, you, you're giving too much to your husband. You need to find your own self. You need to live your own life. And so O-Y-L-E abandoned her daughter, abandoned her husband, and went all over the world kayaking, windsurfing, climbing mountains, bungee jumping, you name it. She almost died twice and, in fact, was lectured by people who rescued her, saying, you're acting like an idiot. Well, she was so far from God, but she got herself radically saved about a year ago, and now she's learning submission. And she has apologized to her husband for what she's done. She's apologized to her child for what she's done. And she is learning to be a submissive. She's submissive to Christ. She says, whatever God wants, I'll do it. I'll just wait and see what he does. She is willing to remarry the guy if he'll have her back, which he should. She says, I'll do whatever I'll do. I'll do whatever it takes. Even though the guy's got another girlfriend, she's willing to do that. And the husband is starting to respond to it. The ex-husband, he's nicer to her. He talks to her. He helps her with raising the kids. It's just amazing how men will respond to a wife who acts the Christian way as opposed to the feminist worldly way. Now, this word submit here, in the same way wives submit to your own husbands, of course, that's a dirty word in today's culture. I remember seeing a Christian guy get up and says, hey, he's going to talk about the role of women in the church and the role of women in the marriage. And he says, oh, I want my assistant pastor to do it. I want somebody else to do it. And everybody's going, ha, 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 ha. You can't even talk about basic Christian stuff in our screwed up culture without somebody acting apologetic about it. Christians acting apologetic about it. I'm not apologetic about a word that's in the scripture. It says submit yourselves to your own husbands. What part of the inerrant and inspired word do you not understand, evangelical Christian? Oh, maybe we should throw the Bible out instead of obeying it. Then you can become a liberal Christian and live your life in such a way that disaster will fall on your heads. Submit yourselves to your own husband. That word is from the Greek word hupotasso, a, a grammatical form of it. It's the same word that Peter used when he talked about slaves being submissive to masters and citizens being submissive to the government, hupotasso. And it's a strong word. It's not be persuaded by. It means submit to. Do what they say. It's also used of military leaders to their generals. It's also used of Christians to God. Uh, and it's also used by Paul in Ephesians 5.22 and Galatians 3.18 when he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands, or wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Same word, hupotasso. It's a strong word. There's no fudging about it. There's no semantic blurring of the meaning of the word. It means what it says, submit. Now, of course, this is assuming this is in submitting in ordinary domestic affairs, not in immoral, illegal affairs if you... If your husband tells the wife to go rob a bank, to have sex with another man, to watch pornography, to quit praying to God and that kind of stuff, well, of course, the wife should not submit. She should pick, she should get her handgun. Let's just say a 38 Rossi 38 Special. Point the gun between his eyes and say, don't ask me that anymore or there's going to be trouble. So I'm not saying that women should be doormats. They should submit in ordinary affairs of domesticities, for example, this is the job that I think is best for our family, and if you have to give up your job, honey, well, I'm sorry, but you need to, well, then you submit to that. Or, honey, I think our kids should be educated here and not there. You submit to that. Now, that doesn't mean you don't give your input 
and so forth. But push comes to shove, you submit to it, and you're going to be a happy wife, a happy woman, a happy Christian. Because there are also certain things that husbands are supposed to do. And if you've got a Christian husband and you've got a Christian marriage, well, then it becomes so much easier. But I think Peter's also talking about even with non-Christian husbands. Because he says even if some disobey the Christian message, they may be won over. Obviously, that's a non-Christian. But anyway, live a pure, reverent life instead of going out and reading Gloria Steinem and talking about how you're going to find yourself. And how you are sinking your existence into the into the existence of your husband and how terribly demeaning that is and all the feminist excrement that's floating around out there in the culture. You may win your husband over, may win your husband over without a word or without a message, as the Holman Christian Study Bible puts it. Now, this shows that not all salvations are done by hearing the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Well, sometimes it's just by the example of a Christian life can win somebody over. Now, of course, after the husband is won over, the gospel needs to be explained to him. So I guess you could say that his hearing eventually does come by the word of God. But the occasion of his belief is the pure and reverent behavior of his non-Christian wife. Oh, excuse me, of his Christian wife. Arguing is not the way to win over a non-believing husband. First of all, men don't like to take advice from their wives. That's the, the nature and problems of the male sex. And then if the husband doesn't listen, he becomes insensitive, he closes his ears, he acts like a horse's ass, you know, like husbands do. The response to that is not nag, 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 nag. And this is why women get into nagging. The women, the men don't listen, and so the women feel like in order to make them listen, they need to nag. Well, that doesn't work. I wish I had the scripture in front of me about it. What is it, like a dripping faucet as a nagging woman or like a, what is it, something on a rooftop. I forgot what it is now in the Old Testament about Nag, 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 nag. Men do not like that. They like purity and reverence, though. First Peter 3, verses 3 through 5. Your beauty. Now, Peter is talking about Christian wives now. Your beauty should not consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold ornaments or fine clothes. Instead, it should consist of what is inside the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very valuable in God's eyes. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also beautified themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands. Now here, Peter exhorts the women to have a gentle and quiet spirit. In the previous couple of verses, he said that he exhorted them to be pure and reverent. Pure and reverent in verses 1 and 2, and gentle and quiet in verse 4. Contrast that, will, that, if you will, with the brassy, loudmouth American. I hate to say American, but that's, I'm for, you know, that's the way it is over here. Person who's going around spouting off, telling men that they don't know what they're talking about, to please be quiet. You have toxic masculinity. You're interfering with my, my being, my freedom. No, that is not, men don't want to marry people like that. You know, it's kind of funny. The marriage rate is going down amongst people between 20 and 30. And think about it. Why would a man want to marry a woman like that? And if if more and more women are like that, more and more women exhibit the feminist ideal, why would any man want to marry somebody like that? They won't. Now, when Paul say, Peter says that your beauty should not consist of outward things, he means to say your beauty should not merely consist of outward things. And I, this comes up over and over again in the Scripture. I don't know why in the Greek, the Greek writers don't put that word merely in there. It would be very clear. I guess they just assumed it was understood. We do it in English. Because he's not trying to be exclusive about this. He's not saying that hairstyles, even elaborate hairstyles, are evil. Gold ornaments are evil. Fine clothes are evil. 
He couldn't say that because in the Old Testament, I'm going to read you a lot of examples, those things were considered to be beautiful and fine. What he's saying is you don't dress yourself up and look great if you're a witch with a bee on the inside. There's not enough fancy clothes and perfumes and cosmetics and linens and so forth and hairstyles that are going to cover up the ugliness that's inside of you. That's all he's saying. There are some places in the Old, Term- Old Testament where women applied all sorts of beautifying things, and the Old Testament nowhere condemns these things. Genesis twenty-four forty-seven. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrist. Genesis twenty-four fifty-three. Then he brought out objects of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. I think that was the servant whose name slips my mind. The minute he went out to look for a wife for Isaac. Song of Songs, verse, chapter 4, verse 10. The fragrance of your perfume is better than any balsam. That's a Shunammite woman Solomon's talking to. He loved her perfume. Nothing wrong with that. Proverbs 31, 22. She makes her own bed coverings. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. This is the excellent wife who can find in Proverbs 31. Maybe. How would you like it if your wife's clothing was fine linen and purple? Nothing wrong with that. Jeremiah 2.32, can a young woman forget her jewelry or a bride her wedding sash? Nothing wrong with a beautiful bride. Nothing wrong with a woman wearing jewelry. Now, I emphasize this because I grew up in the fundamentalist South, the pietistic South, and oh my gosh, I know how this verse was interpreted. It's wrong to wear makeup. And you know, the Pentecostal churches, oh my gosh, it's a sin to wear makeup. Peter was not saying it was a sin to wear makeup. Remember, a lot of Christian Preachers trying to fight against that idea, they would say, hey, if the barn needs paint, paint it. That didn't explain things scripturally, although it did resonate with people on a practical level. But I like to do things on a spirit, on a scriptural level, and, and I just proved to you. If the barn needs paint, paint it. They painted the barn in the Old Testament. No problem. So this gentle and quiet spirit, instead of all the outward makeup and cosmetics and clothing, all this gentle and quiet spirit, that's all very valuable in God's eyes. And now Peter applies appeals to Old Testament women to make his point. Now John Gill gives some examples of such Old Testament women. People like women like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, Ruth, and Hannah. That would be a great Bible study to go through the lives of all those famous Old Testament women and see how they submitted to their husbands. I haven't done that actually, but it would be a good one. We do know about Sarah because it's kind of kind of well known what she did. We'll talk about that in a minute in the next verse how Sarah obeyed Abraham. Now this phrase, inside the heart, in verse 4, the beauty of a woman, the beauty of a wife should consist of what is inside the heart. Paul in Romans 7.22 says this, For in my inner self I joyfully agree with God's law. That's what the heart is, is your inner being. It's what you think. It's what you are. you got a, you got a kind and gentle woman, wife, who doesn't gossip, who doesn't deceive, who doesn't run down other women, who's not jealous. Hey, an excellent wife. Who can find such a woman? Now these godly women that Peter is talking about said submitted to their, they were submitting to their own husbands. They beautified themselves in this way, submitting to, to their own husbands. That's how they made themselves beautiful to their husbands. Not by wearing something beautiful, clothes, cosmetics, but by submitting to them. Adam Clark says women who ostentatiously parade in public looking for attention are not likely to submit to husbands, looking for attention with their elaborate hairstyles and their fancy clothes. Now, they might submit because they're forced to, but they don't willingly submit. Here's a quote from Clark. Their dress, which they intend, is an attractive to the eyes of others, 
which they intend as attractive to the eyes of others, is a sufficient proof that they have neither love nor respect for their own husbands. And again, that word submit there is hupotasso, the strong word, just like a sergeant submits to the general. First Peter 3, 6, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. That's in the middle of a sentence, so let's get the end of verse 5 here. These women beautified themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, verse 6, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham. So he's given an example of an Old Testament woman who beautified herself. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. How did she obey Abraham? Well, first of all, she followed Abraham from Ur to Haran, which is in present-day Syria, still there, actually. And Ur, they found the archaeological site. That's down there near the Persian Gulf. So they went all the way up the Mesopotamian Valley to Syria, away from his home. Sarah had to leave her friends and her relatives, and she obeyed Abraham and went up to Haran. And then Abraham said, well, no, now we've got to leave Haran. After she got settled down there, we've got to go to the Promised Land into Canaan, or Canaan, as some people say. Well, that means Sarah had to uproot herself again. The life of a no man is not easy for a wife. She's following her husband. And I'm sure she probably wasn't happy about it. I know I would have had a hard time being happy about it. Well, after they wander around in Canaan a little bit, Abraham wanders on down into Egypt in Philistia. Egypt where he turned her over to the Pharaoh's harem. And in Philistia, which is in southern Israel, down there on the co- near the coast in a little kingdom called Gerar. And he, tur- and he turned Sarah over to the harem of Abimelech. I think his name was Abimelech. Abimelech, the king of Gerar. And Abraham said, oh, she's my sister. And they put her in the harem. And oh, my gosh. And people say, now, that's, talk, that, that's some first-rate obedience there. She obeyed Abraham, even let Abraham prostitute her out to these kings. Well, I'm going to give a little defense of Abraham. I, I think Abraham gets a bad rap for this. Well, let's just put some things in context. First of all, Abraham does not have any military strength. He doesn't have a government like the king of Gerar did and like the Egyptian pharaoh did. So he's weak militarily. He's weak diplomatically and politically. He doesn't have any allies to help him, so he's helpless. Also, the scripture clearly says somewhere in Genesis that Sarah was beautiful. So he goes down there, and men being what they are, testosterone-laden bastards that they are, Somebody's going to try to steal his wife. Now, that would be a pain to him, but it would also be terrible for Sarah. So in order to protect Sarah, I submit, perhaps Abraham says, well, you know, since it takes a king about a year to get to his wives in the harem, because they have to go through these classes and they have to prepare them and they have to beautify them and all this stuff, it'll be a year before the Pharaoh or before Abimelech gets to Sarah. And maybe in that year I can figure out how to get her out of there. And so maybe he was just protecting her. Now, I don't know if that's a decent defense or not. I came up with that. I think I came up with that on my own. I don't know if I read that anywhere or not. But think about it. He might not have been so so caddish, so brutish, so callous as people make him out to be. But at any rate, we know that Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. We see that in Genesis 18, verse 12. So she laughed to herself, after I become shriveled up and my Lord is old, will I have delight? Talking about. Will she have a baby named Isaac? Yes, she did, as a matter of fact. She's laughing about it to herself. Either happily or in derision and sarcasm. We, I'm, people de- debate over that. But the point is, she calls him, My Lord, when my Lord is old, will I have delight. So she literally in the scriptures called Abraham Lord. Now, if you are like, if you Christian wives can be like Sarah, you have become Sarah's children. 
a child takes on the characteristics of its parent. So if you want to take on the characteristic of this godly woman, Sarah, this pure, this reverent, gentle, holy woman, Sarah, you can become her children when you do what is good. And then he says, and you're not frightened by anything alarming. And that tells me that Peter is alluding to husbands who ask their wives to do something frightening and that the wife doesn't want to do. For example, leave her, go to Haran, leave Haran, go to Canaan. How many times do husbands ask their wives to do something frightening? Because men, as all marriage seminars will tell you, they like to take risk and they want to get ahead and they want to make money. And so they take the wife's savings and they take the wife's security and the money she needs to buy things for the house. And he invested in some fly-by-night scheme, and the wife gets frightened and insecure. Happens all the time. Peter says, you don't need to be frightened by anything alarming. If you will just obey your husband and trust that God will work through him to take care of his bad investments. And hey, you might end up like Sarah. Sarah, after, after all, Sarah obeyed. And what happened with her? She died a rich woman. I mean, Abraham was loaded by the time he died. So... She didn't, she didn't do bad by obeying. Now, this idea of being frightened by it, but not, a submissive wife will not be alarmed by anything frightening. It could be that Peter is still thinking about citizens submitting to governments and slave owners slaving to masters, because in those two situations, you really have a potential for abuse, abuse of authority, especially non-Christian authority. And they could tell you to do something that's frightening, like get drafted to go fight a war. Peter had said in 1 Peter 2.18, Household slaves submit with all fear to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the cruel. Ooh, submitting to a good and gentle master, that's really not that hard to do. But to a cruel master? Oh, it's a frightening thing to be under someone else's authority. And I, I had two daughters. And I think that's why fathers worry about their daughters more than their husbands. Because, you know, your husband's not going to, I mean, you know, he's stronger. He's less likely going to be abused by his wife let's put it that way but man you got a daughter and marrying some man that man can take advantage of her and can hurt her and can abuse her i've watched enough lifetime wife abuse movies to where i am very sensitive to that thing and i think thank god my two daughters married godly men they're very godly men and they would never hurt my daughters and they will do nothing but help them and so it's easier for my daughters to submit to a husband like that and it just hadn't been a problem. But boy, you marry an ungodly man who's cruel, then you got problems. And then it gets to be very, very hard to submit. But Peter says submit. Now, again, that doesn't mean to submit to bank robbery or watching pornography or anything like that. Verse 7, 1 Peter 3. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives with an understanding of their weaker nature, yet showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Here's a good quote from Adam Clark, quote, Roughness and strength go hand in hand, so likewise do beauty and frailty. The female has what the man wants, beauty and delicacy. The male has what the female wants, courage and strength. There's a great example of complementarianism. Now, why does Peter say to live with your wives in an understanding way? Because he's just told wives to submit to husbands, and that presents an opportunity for abuse if a husband takes advantage of that and abuses his wife. He said, no, you don't do that. You understand that they're under your authority and therefore they're weaker. Now, actually, people debate on what, it, what does it mean to be the weaker sex. Here are some options. Moral stamina. No, they're not weaker in moral stamina than men. 
And I've studied Bible denies that, and I agree. The strength of character. Nah, women can be just as strong in their character as men can. In fact, I would make the argument probably they're stronger in general, but we won't do that. In their mental capacity, that's not true. Women, now they might be stronger in certain academic subjects. They're stronger in languages than the math, and that's something to do with the structure of the brain. Oh, I know some feminists might disagree with me on that, but that just shows the ignorance of feminists. I remember in language class in China, the girls, of course, are always beating the mud out of the men in the class, and I was a man. And not to mention the fact that young people do language better than old people. And I had, I said, I got plenty of excuses. I'm a man, and I'm an old, and I'm old. That's why I can't master this ridiculous language. <laughs> but anyway, it's not mental character that women are weaker in, or mental capacity that they're weaker than men. How about physical strength? Well, yeah, now women are in general weaker than men. NIV Study Bibles affirms that, and John Gill affirms that. But I don't think that's what Peter meant. Husbands, live with your wives and understand that they're weaker than you. Why would a man especially need to show understanding to someone who's physically weaker? Should he say, okay, honey, I don't want you to lift up this heavy load here when we're moving into the house. Well, is that really what Peter's aiming at? I don't think so. So I would beg to disagree with NIV Study Bible and John Gill. I think it means weaker in status. A woman has a weaker status than men, especially in Peter's day. Her legal and social status was lower than men. She was supposed to obey her husband. That's scriptural as well as legally. So her husband had power over her. And Peter wants the husbands to use that power lovingly and responsibly. Not only that, financially she was weaker, which is one more example of being weaker in status legally. And financially, she had to depend on her husband for financial support. So men, be understanding of that and be patient of that. And don't start throwing your weight around because of your insecurities. Treat her like Christ died for his church. You die for your wife. You do everything for her. you got a conflict between your Christian ministry and your wife. Guess who should win? Christian ministry can take care of itself. You take care of your wife. And I'm going to tell you something. You don't take care of your wife, there's some man out there that would be perfectly willing to take your place. So don't tempt her. All right, so husbands are supposed to love their wives because they are of weak... Well, it says of their weaker nature here. Holman Christian Study Bible here. I say it's their weaker status. Now, I, should, I suppose I should say here that the literal word here is, is not weaker nature as a Holman Christian Study Bible. The, NA, the NASB says as someone weaker. The literal Greek is a weaker vessel, and the King James translates that straight. And, of course, you wonder, well, what does that mean? Well, I guess Peter's talking about vessels in the kitchen. You know, some are weaker, some are stronger. So I'm just going to take it as somebody that's weaker, and then we can debate on how the woman is weaker, how the wife is weaker. But nature, I don't think their nature is weaker. It reminds me of a book I read. I was studying when I was a college professor, and I like to read stuff. I was reading about slavery in the antebellum South. Well, actually, I wasn't reading about that. I was reading about uh, women in the antebellum South. Somebody had written a book or something. And I forgot the book, and I forgot the author, but I was really impressed. They said, these women... The ones on the plantations, now most of the women didn't have plantations. Very few people in the South did have plantations, about probably 1 or 2%. I think 20% owned slaves, but most of those were just small farms with four slaves that lived in the house. It wasn't one of these big plantations like you see on Gone with the Wind. So they were very few. But at any rate, the women who were in charge of these plantations while their husbands were out getting themselves shot up in the war... What they had to go through, first of all, the constant uncertainty of knowing whether their husband was going to be killed or not. 
and somebody's going to come tell them their husband's dead. They had to manage a plantation. Can you imagine? They had to manage all the slaves. They had to manage the planting, the harvesting, the reaping, the marketing, the selling. And then if their husband didn't get killed, came back from the war, he hasn't been with his wife in months. And so naturally he's going to want to get it on a little bit, whether you know. And all of a sudden now the woman's got to say this is before there was contraceptions. And abortion was not either a practical or a moral option. So now she's thinking, okay, now what if I get pregnant and have to manage the plantation and do all the planting and the reaping and the harvesting and the marketing and so forth? What happens then? I think that's where we get the expression steel magnolias. So when I, and I've grown up down here with steel magnolias, I want to tell you something. Don't tell me that women are weaker in their nature. They're weaker physically and they're weaker in status, but they're not weaker in courage or in character. Or an intellect, in my humble opinion. Adam Clark's got a little quote here. Men should use their strength to help their wives and their weakness. In other words, a, man, a husband should not use his strength in order to subjugate his wife and make her miserable. He should help his wife in every area where he's weak. Just like a, a wife should help her husband where he's weak. Says the, the Christian husband should honor his wife. Now, I just take that as respect, but that word honor can also mean material support, as in honor the elder who works hard at, at um, eldering. That could be respect, or it could be money. Well, same here. The First Timothy 5, 3 says, honor widows that are widows indeed. That's talking about money. But here, wives are supposed to honor their wives. Husbands are supposed to honor their wives. I don't think it means material support. Of course, that is owed legally as well as morally. A husband has to support his wife. But I think here it's talking about respect. John Gill disagrees. He says this, The husband should honor the Christian wife, quote, not only by clothing her in a decent and becoming manner, suitable to her station, but by providing everything honest and comely for her, food and raiment, a suitable maintenance, all the necessaries, convenience, and delights of life that are laudable and proper, in which sense the word honor is used in 1 Timothy 5, 3. Well... Maybe, maybe not. The word is used in First Timothy 5, 3. I th actually, I do. I think he's talking about honor, not in the sense of a salary, but giving money to those who work hard, to those elders who work hard. So here the idea is honor your wife with financial support. Now, I don't know if that's what Peter means here. I don't know whether he means respect or whether he means to give her money, but the husband should do both. Nothing worse than a deadbeat husband. Nothing a wife is called by Peter here in verse 7, 1 Peter 3, a co-heir of the grace of life. And an heir is someone who inherits. Someone who inherits doesn't do a doggone thing to get that inheritance. He didn't do anything. He just got it. He just receives it. And the husband didn't do anything special to get it over his wife. She, just in the same way as he, received the grace of life. And so she is equal with you, not in function, but in, in, in worth, she is. Now, that brings up another topic here. Feminists have a hard time. It's something in their genes. They have a genetic moron gene. They cannot understand the difference between equality of worth and equality of function. For example, I am submissive to my government. That doesn't mean that people in Washington, D.C. have more moral worth than me. I would argue they have less moral worth, but that would be conceded. But an easy argument to make, given the kind of politicians we have up there so but i do submit to them functionally i pay my taxes i drive on the right side of the road but that doesn't mean i'm morally inferior to them and likewise a wife is 
submissive to her husband. That doesn't mean she's morally inferior to him. It just means that she functionally obeys him. Now, a wife is said to be a co-heir with the husband of the grace of life. That phrase, grace of life, probably should be unpacked a little bit. It's the gift of life. It's the life which has been given to you as a gift. The gift of life. The grace of life. She got it. You got it. She's a co-heir. Galatians 3.28. There's no Jew or Greek, slave or free. Male or female. Husband or wife. There's no distinction there. She's your equal as far as salvation is concerned. But not as far as making domestic decisions. Now there's one last problem in verse 7 here. 1 Peter 3. Peter says, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives. Now, I looked at about three or four or five commentaries, and nobody says what this means. And to me, it's an obvious question. In the same way? In what way? Well, since the commentaries didn't have any suggestions, I'm going to have to give you some myself. Option number one, dwell with wives. Dwell with your wives according to the knowledge that they live with you, just like they live with you according to knowledge of you. Live with your wife according to knowledge of the condition of your wife, just as they live with you according to their knowledge of your condition. The King James makes it a little bit clearer than the Holman Christian Study Bible. First Peter 3, 7, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. In other words, according to the knowledge that you have of their weaker status. Giving honor unto the life as unto the weaker vessel. Dwell with them according to knowledge. And in the same way, husbands, live with your wives. And so when, when Peter says, in the same way, that you're to do that, that's in the same way as your wife lives with you according to her knowledge of you. I don't know if that's kind of a, a weak option, but I suggest it to you. How about this? In the same way as a wife gives honor to her husband, in the same way you give honor to your wife. Let's look at the King James translation again. Likewise, you husbands, giving honor unto the wife, give honor to the wife in the same way, likewise, as she gives honor to you. By submitting to you. Now, that's reasonable. He could even be referring all the way back to the last chapter where Peter tells slave masters to treat their slaves kindly. And then he says, likewise, husbands, treat your wives in the same kind way as slave masters treat their slaves. You treat your wives the same way. I'm not exactly sure what he means by saying husbands in the same way. But I'll give you three options. Maybe one day I'll run into a commentator to come up with a better solution. We now go to verses 8 and 9. 1 Peter 3. Now finally, all of you should be like-minded and sympathetic, should love believers and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you were called for this so that you can inherit a blessing. Now finally, all of you, as opposed to the slaves, the wives, and the husbands, he's been speaking to subsets of Christians, and now he brings them all back together, and he's addressing them all at once, all of you. All categories of you. All of you should be like-minded. The NIV says all of you should live in harmony. Now, there's some other scriptures that say this. Romans 12:16. this is Paul. Be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. In other words, live together and don't be arrogant. Philippians 2, 2, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love. Now, the problem with this is, what does it mean to be like-minded, thinking the same way as Paul puts it to the Philippians? What does that mean, thinking the same way? Does that mean have all the same doctrinal teaching? Well, if you, if you define unity, unity that way, every church will always be in a state of eternal disunity because people will never have the same doctrinal, at least on minor peripheral things. They're not going to have the same doctrinal beliefs. They'll have the, the common things, of course, will be in common. 
the Nicene Creed type things, but other things they want. So what does it mean? Is it talking about have the same judgment with regard to the doctrines of God? That's what John Gill says, but I don't agree with that. The other option is to have the same love and compassion for and humble spirit towards one another. In other words, just personally be kind to one another. John Gill denies that, but I think he's wrong. I think that's exactly what Peter's talking about. I don't think he's talking about having doctrinal unity in all points, especially when we look at the next exhortation. Peter says that the Christian should love believers. Well, that's not doctrinal. That's personal. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 10, about brotherly love. You don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to do what? To love one another. In fact, you're doing this toward all the brothers in, in the entire region of Macedonia, but we encourage you, brothers, to do so even more. Love one another. The author of Hebrews, Hebrews 13.1 says, let brotherly love continue. So I think this being like-minded is talking about have kind affections toward one another, not having the same doctrinal beliefs. Another personal way to be like-minded is to be compassionate toward one another. Paul says the same thing in Colossians 3.12, Therefore God's chosen one, holy chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion. Heartfelt, sincere, not fake. Care about one another and be humble. Well, we all know what humility is. Jesus gave the example of humility in the canonic passage in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, who, referring to Jesus, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Now, folks, that's humility. Son of God, becoming a man, then gets killed, brutalized as some kind of a criminal. In verse 9, 1 Peter 3, 8, Paul, Peter continues, not he's talking about all the Christians that he's writing to, in the dispersion in Asia Minor, in Asia, I should say, in Anatolia. Don't pay back evil for evil, insult for insult, but on the contrary, give a blessing. Paul says the same thing about not paying evil for evil. Sounds an awful lot like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn the other cheek. Paul says in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will, will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy, enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Now, there's a Sermon on the Mount type thing. Now, of course, this is not talking about personal defense, judicial actions, of course. That would be a complete... People take Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and butcher it by making it apply in the wrong cases. It's just talking about your personal attitudes towards somebody does you wrong. You don't go out and try to get revenge on him. So Peter says it, and Paul said it, and Jesus said it. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. And instead of doing that, you give a blessing when somebody does says something evil to you or insults you, you bless him back. Since you will call for this, you will call for giving back a blessing in return for an insult. You will call, why? So that you can inherit, inherit a blessing. You want to inherit a blessing, you got to give a blessing. And it's talking about giving a blessing to people who insult you. Oh my gosh, that's hard. Especially if you live in an honor culture like China or like the American South, when somebody, boy, your honor gets violated. Ooh, real hard to forgive. You watch all these movies where somebody gets challenged for a duel and you think, well, that's silly. 
Well, it's silly, but boy, you don't know how bad it is when your honor gets impugned. Rome, ancient Rome was like that, too. An honor society. It's a terrible thing to deprive someone of honor. It's worth risking your life over in those societies to have a duel. We're going to stop that nonsense. Uh, not the dueling, which I do think is nonsense, but we're going to see the dueling. The people who fought duels, the point was, is to stop the, the desecration of someone's honor. First Peter 3, 10 through 12, we'll finish it up. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And he must turn away from evil and do what is good. He must seek peace and pursue it, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their request. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. What's the for therefore? For it's another way of saying because, because why? Peter is saying that the quotation from Psalms that he's given us here, it gives us reason for obeying verse 9. Verse 9 says, don't give an insult for an insult so that you can inherit a blessing. And now, because of that, you keep your tongue from evil. In other words, if you return an insult with another insult, you're not keeping your tongue from evil. So, because you want to love life and see good days, keep your tongue from evil. Don't return evil for an insult, but bless the insulter instead. This is a quotation from Psalms. 34 verses 12 through 16. Let me read it. Who is the man who delights in life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to erase all memory of them from the earth. In other words, you don't need to be saying bad things. God's going to erase the memory of them from the earth. I'm thinking of a certain political party in America right now. I would love for the memory of this party to be erased from the earth. But it's going to have to be God that does it. I can't do it. I can't curse them when they offend me every time they one of them opens their mouth. No, I guess I should bless them. <sighs> I've never done that before. I guess maybe I just challenged myself. Peter continues in verse 12, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. To do what? To catch them saying something evil instead of re returning a blessing for an insult? No, that's not what Peter's saying. Adam Clark says the eyes of the Lord are on believers to continually protect them. They don't need to worry about evil coming on them because God's protected them. He'll take care of it. He'll take care of my family from this certain evil political party I'm talking about. He'll take care of us. His eyes are on us. He's on the righteous. His ears open to the request. He's on duty 24-7. You got something to pray about? Pray it. He's there to listen. But on the other hand, the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. God is not some grandfather up in heaven sitting on a sofa doling out presents to his lovely little kids. His face is against those who do evil, and he's going to take care of them. And it's not going to be pleasant for them. Now when he says, when Peter says that God's ears are open to their request... We think of 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15. Now, this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know what he hears, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked him for. Now, of course, that assumes that it's in the will of God because it says whenever we ask anything according to his will. Ladies and gentlemen, we have now finished 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 12. In our next audio, in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 22, we will take up the topic of suffering for righteousness' sake, which is actually a continuation of what we, of what we talked about in this audio. 
Peter, in this audio, talked about wives suffering for righteousness' sake. But in the next audio, we're going to talk about Christians in general suffering for righteousness' sake. Hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.